0: On February 9th, 1983, at the Cranley Gardens Apartments in London, Donald Rod, employee Michael Catron, was responding to plumbing complaints made by tenants. Opening a drain cover at the side of the house, Catron discovered the drain was packed with a flesh-like substance and numerous small bones of unknown origin. Catron reported his suspicions to his supervisor, Gary Wheeler. As Catron had arrived at the property at dusk, He and Wheeler agreed to postpone further investigation into the blockage until the following morning. Prior to leaving the property, Scotsman Dennis Nielsen and another tenant, Jim Alcock, convened with Katrin to discuss the source of the substance. Upon hearing Katrin explain how similar the substance was in appearance to human flesh, Nielsen replied, It looks to me like someone has been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken. This is the beginning of the end of the five-year killing spree of Scotsman, Dennis Nielsen. Welcome to History's Biggest Villains. Uh, Dennis Nielsen was born on November 23, 1945 in Fraserburg, Aberdeenshire. His parents had a rocky marriage as his father, Olav Maksim, a soldier in the Norwegian forces that didn't really take married life seriously, spending limited time with his family and this led to his parents' eventual divorce in 1948. Dennis was a quiet but adventurous child, often going on family picnics and long walks with his grandfather, whom he idolized, calling him his great hero and protector, saying that life would be empty for me until he returned. By 1951, though, his grandfather's health was steadily declining. On October 31, 1951, he died of a heart attack while fishing in the North Sea, He was 62. His family brought the body ashore and returned it to their home. In what Nielsen later described would be his most vivid childhood recollection, his mother, who was weeping, asked him whether he wanted to see his grandfather. When he replied that he did, he was taken into the room where his grandfather lay in an open coffin. As Nielsen gazed upon the body, his mother told him his grandfather was sleeping, adding that he had gone to a better peace. After his grandfather's death, Nilsson became quiet and withdrawn, often standing alone at the harbor watching the herring boats. At home, he seldom participated in family activities and retreated from any attempts by adult family members to demonstrate any affection towards him. Nilsson grew to resent what he saw as the unfair amount of attention his mother, grandmother, and later stepfather displayed towards his older brother and younger sister. Nilsson envied Olaf Jr's popularity he often talked to or played games with his younger sister sylvia whom he was closer to than any other member of his family at the onset of his puberty nielsen discovered that he was gay which initially confused and shamed him he kept his sexuality hidden from his family and his few friends because many of the boys whom he was attracted to had facial features similar to those of his younger sister Sylvia. On one occasion, he groped her, believing that his attraction towards boys might be a manifestation of the care he felt for her. On one occasion, he also caressed and funneled the body of his older brother as he slept. As a result of this, Olaf Jr. began to suspect his brother was gay and regularly belittled him in public, referring to Dennis as hen and this is Scottish dialect for girl. As Nielsen progressed into adolescence, he found life in Strichen increasingly stifling with limited entertainment amenities and career opportunities. He respected his parents' efforts to provide and care for their children, but began to resent the fact that his family was poorer than most of his peers, with his mother and stepfather making no effort to better their lifestyles. Thus, Nielsen seldom invited his friends to the family home. At the age of 14, he joined the Army Cadet Force viewing the British Army as a potential avenue for escaping his rural origins. Nelson passed the entrance examinations and received official notification he was to enlist for nine years service in September of 1961, commencing his training with the Army Catering Corps in St. Omer Barracks in Aldershot, Hampshire. Within weeks, Nelson began to excel in his Army duties. He later described his three years of training at Aldershot as the happiest of my life. He relished the travel opportunities afforded him, in his training and recalled as a highlight his regiment taking part in a ceremonial parade attended by both the queen and field marshal lord montgomery of alamein while stationed at aldershot nelson's latent feelings began to stir but he kept his sexual orientation well hidden from his colleagues nelson never showered in the company of his fellow soldiers for fear of developing an erection in their presence instead opting to bathe alone in the bathroom which also afforded him the privacy to pleasure himself without discovery his developed fantasies with an unresistant and deceased partner unfulfilled. Nielsen compensated by imagining sexual encounters with an unconscious body as he pleasured himself while looking at his own body in the mirror. In April, 1973, Nielsen completed his training for the Metropolitan Police and was posted to Williston Green. Nielsen enjoyed the work, but missed the camaraderie ship of the army. He began to drink alone in the evenings. During the summer and autumn of 1973, Nelson began frequenting gay pubs and engaged in several casual liaisons with men. He viewed these encounters as soul-destroying liaisons, in which he would only lend his partner his body in a vain search for inner peace as he sought a long-lasting relationship. In August, following a failed relationship, Nielsen came to the conclusion that his personal lifestyle was at odds with his job. His birth father had died the same month leaving each of his three children a 1,000 pounds, which would be the equivalent of about $9,700 in 2022. In December of 1973, Nielsen resigned from the Metropolitan Police. Between December 1973 and May 1974, Nielsen worked as a security guard. The work was intermittent and he wanted to find more stable, secure employment. He found work as a civil servant in May of 1974. At his workplace, Nielsen was known to be a quiet, consensuous employee who was active in the trade union movement. His attendance record was mediocre, although he frequently volunteered to work overtime, leading several colleagues to suspect he was something of a loner. In 1979, Nielsen was appointed acting executive officer. He was officially promoted to the position of executive officer with additional supervisory responsibilities in June 1982, and he was transferred to another job center in Kennistown, continuing in this job until he got arrested. Now we go on to the details of all the murders. I'm just letting you know, some of these details might be graphic. They might be, you know, if you got little kids around or if you're squeamish or, you know, listener discretion. That's what I'm saying. On December 30th, 1978, 14 year old Stephen Moore was the first victim of Nelson. Holmes encountered Nelson in the Crookwood Arms pub where Holmes had unsuccessfully attempted to purchase alcohol. According to Nielsen, he had been drinking heavily alone on the day he met Holmes before deciding in the evening that he must at all costs leave his flat and seek company. Nielsen invited Holmes to his house with the promise of the two drinking alcohol and listening to music, believing him to be approximately 17. Nielsen was 33 at the time. At Nielsen's home, he, both he and Holmes drank heavily before they fell asleep. The following morning, Nielsen awoke to find the sleeping Holmes beside him on his bed. In his subsequent written confessions, Nilsson stated that he was afraid to wake him in case he left me. After caressing the sleeping youth, Nilsson decided Holmes was to stay with me over the new year, whether he wanted to or not. Reaching for a necktie, Nilsson straddled Holmes as he strangled him into unconsciousness before drowning the teenager in a bucket filled with water. Nilsson then washed the body in his bathtub before placing Holmes on his bed and caressing his body. He twice pleasured himself over the body before awaiting the passing of rigor mortis to enable him to stow the corpse beneath his floorboards. Holmes' bound corpse remained beneath the floorboards for almost eight months before Nielsen built a bonfire in the garden behind his flat and burned the body on August 11th of 1979. Um, these are some comments from Nielsen. This is in one of his confessions. He said, I eased him into his new bed beneath the floorboards. A week later, I wondered whether his body had changed at all or it started to decompose. I disinterred him and pulled the dirt-stained youth up upon the floor. His skin was very dirty. I stripped myself naked and carried him into the bathroom and washed the body. There was practically no discoloration and his skin was pale white. His limbs were more relaxed than when I had put him down there. Reflecting on this killing spree after he got caught in 1983, he also said that having killed Holmes, I have caused dreams which caused death this is my crime, adding that he had started down the avenue of death and possession of a new kind of flatmate. On December 3rd of 1979, Nelson encountered a 23-year-old Canadian student named Kenneth Ockenden, who had been on a tour of England visiting relatives. Nelson encountered Ockenden as they both drank in a West End pub. Upon learning the young man was a tourist, Nielsen offered to show Ockenden several London landmarks, an offer of which he accepted. Nielsen then invited the student to his house on the promise of a meal and further drinks. The pair stopped and purchased whiskey, rum, and beer, with Ockenden insisting on sharing the bill. Nielsen was adamant he could not recall the precise moment he strangled Ockenden, but recalled that he had strangled the young man with a cord of his headphones as Ockenden listened to music. He also recalled dragging him across the floor with the wire wrapped around his neck, as he strangled him before pouring himself half a glass of rum and continuing to listen to the music on the headphones in which he had strangled ockenden the following day nielsen purchased a pullboy camera and photographed his body in various suggested positions he then laid ockenden's corpse spread equal above him on his bed as he watched television for several hours before wrapping the body in plastic bags Stowing the corpse beneath the floorboards. On approximately four occasions over the next couple of days, Nielsen disinterred Ackenden's body from beneath his floorboards and seated the body upon his armchair alongside him as he himself watched television and drank alcohol. Nielsen killed his third victim, 16-year-old Martin Duffy, on May 17th, 1980. Duffy was a catering student from Birkenhead, Merseyside, who had hitchhiked to London without his parents' knowledge on May 13th after being questioned by the British Transport Police for evading his train fare. For four days, Duffy had slept rough near Houston Railway Station before Nielsen encountered the youth as he returned from a union conference in Southport. Duffy happily accepted Nielsen's offer of a meal and a bed for the evening. After the youth had fallen asleep in Nielsen's bed, he fashioned the ligature around his neck, then simultaneously sat on Duffy's chest and tightened the ligature with a great force. Nielsen held this grip until Duffy became unconscious. Then he dragged the youth into his kitchen and drowned him in the sink before bathing with the body, which he recollected as being the youngest-looking I had ever seen. Duffy's body was first placed upon a kitchen chair, then upon the bed on which he had been strangled. The body had been repeatedly kissed, complimented, and caressed by Nielsen, both before and after he had pleasured himself while sitting upon the stomach of the corpse. Two days, Duffy's body was stowed in a cupboard before Nielsen noted signs of bloating, therefore he went straight under the floorboards. following Duffy's murder, Nielsen began to kill with increasing frequency. Before the end of 1980, he killed a further five victims and attempted to murder one other. Only one of these victims whom Nielsen murdered, 26-year-old William Sutherland, had been identified. Nielsen could not recall precisely how he had murdered Sutherland, other than that he had strangled Sutherland as he himself stood or knelt in front of his victim, and in the morning, there was quote unquote, another dead body. Inevitably, the accumulated bodies beneath Nielsen's floorboards attracted insects and created a foul odor, particularly during the summer months. On occasions when Nielsen disinterred victims from beneath the floorboards, he had noted that the bodies were covered with pupae and infested with maggots. Some victim's heads had maggots crawling out of eye sockets and mouths. He placed the odorants beneath the floorboards, sprayed insecticide about the flat twice daily, But the odor of decay and the presence of flies remained. In late 1980, Nielsen removed and dissected the bodies of each victim killed since December of 1979 and burned them upon a communal bonfire he had constructed on waste ground behind his flat. To disguise the smell of burning flesh of the six dissected bodies placed in the fire, Nielsen had added rubber tires to the flame. Three neighborhood children had stood to watch this particular bonfire, and Nielsen later wrote in his memoirs that he felt it would have seemed in order that he had seen three children dancing around a mass funeral pyre. When the bonfire had been reduced to ashes and cinders, Nielsen used a rake to search the debris for any recognizable bones. Noting that a skull was still intact, he smashed it to pieces with his rake. Around January 4th, 1981, Nielsen encountered an unidentified man, whom he described for investigators as an 18-year-old blue-eyed young Scot at the Golden Lion Pub in Soho. He was lured to Melrose Avenue upon the promise of partaking in a drinking contest. After Nielsen and his victim had consumed several beverages, Nielsen strangled him with a tie and subsequently placed the body beneath the floorboards. Nielsen was known to have informed his employers that he would be ill and would be unable to attend work on January 12th in order that he could dissect both his victim and another identified victim he had killed approximately one month earlier. By April, Nielsen had killed two other identified victims, one of whom he described as an English skinhead whom he had met in Leicester Square. The other he described as Belfast Boy, a man in his early 20s approximately five foot nine or 1.75 meters for my English people. The final victim to be murdered at Melrose Avenue was 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow. Whom Nielsen discovered slumped against the wall outside his home on September 17, 1981. When Nielsen asked about Barlow's welfare, he was informed the medication Barlow was on was for his epilepsy and that caused his legs to weaken. Nielsen suggested that Barlow should be in hospital in supporting him walked him into his residence before phoning for an ambulance the following day barlow was released from the hospital and returned to nielsen's home apparently to thank him he was invited in and after eating a meal began drinking rum and coke before falling asleep on the sofa nielsen manually strangled barlow as he slept before storing his body beneath his kitchen sink the following morning. In mid-1981, Nielsen's landlord decided to renovate 195 Melrose Avenue and asked Nielsen to vacate the property. Nielsen was initially resistant to the proposal, but accepted the offer of a thousand pounds from the landlord to vacate the residence. He moved into an attic flat on 23D Cranley Gardens in the Muswell Hill District of North London on October 5th of 1981. The day before he vacated the property, Nielsen burned the dissected bodies of the last five victims he had killed at this address upon the third and final bonfire he constructed it in the garden behind his flat. At 23 Cranley Gardens, Nielsen had no access to a garden and as he resided in an attic flat, he was unable to stow any bodies beneath his floorboards. For almost two months, any young men that Nielsen encountered and lured to his flat were not assaulted in any manner, although he did attempt to strangle a 19-year-old student named Paul Knobbs, the 23rd of November, 1981, but he stopped himself from completing the act. In March of 1982, Nielsen encountered 23-year-old John Howlett while driving in a pub near Leicester Square. Howlett was lured to Nielsen's flat on the promise of a continuing drink with Nielsen. There, both Nielsen and Howlett drank as they watched the film before Howlett walked into Nielsen's front room and fell asleep in his bed. One hour later, Nielsen unsuccessfully attempted to rouse Howlett then sat on the edge of the bed drinking rum as he stared at Howlett before deciding to kill him. Following a ferocious struggle, Nielsen strangled John into unconsciousness with an upholstery strap before returning to his living room, shaking from the stress of the struggle, quote-unquote, in which he believed he would be overpowered. On three occasions over the next 10 minutes, Nielsen unsuccessfully attempted to kill his victim after noting he had resumed breathing before deciding to fill his bathtub with water and drown him. Over a week following Howlett's murder, Nielsen's own neck bore the victim's finger impressions. On May 1982, Nielsen encountered 21-year-old Carl Stotter at the Black Cat pub, in Camden. Nilsen engaged Stodder in conversation, discovering he was depressed following a failed relationship. After plying him with alcohol, Nielsen invited Stodder to his flat, assuring his guests he had no sexual intentions. At the flat, Stodder consumed further alcohol before falling asleep upon an open sleeping bag. He later awoke to find himself being strangled by Nelson loudly whispering, Stay Still. At his subsequent testimony in Nielsen's trial, Stotter stated he initially believed Nielsen was trying to free him from the zip of the sleeping bag before he returned to a state of unconsciousness. He then vaguely recalled hearing water running before realizing he was immersed in the water and that Nilsson was attempting to drown him. After briefly succeeding in raising his head above the water, Stodder gasped the words, No more! Please, no more! Before Nilsson again submerged Stodder's head beneath the water. Believing that he had killed Stotter, Nielsen seated the youth in his armchair. Nielsen realized he was still buried alive. He rubbed Stuyder's limbs and heart to increase circulation, covered the youth's body in blanket, then laid him upon his bed. When Stuyder regained consciousness, Nielsen embraced him. He then explained to Stoddard he had almost strangled himself on the zip of the sleeping bag and that he had resuscitated him. Over the following two days, Stoddard repeatedly lapsed in and out of consciousness. When he finally had regained enough strength to question Nielsen as to his recollections of being strangled and immersed in cold water, Nielsen explained he had become caught in the zip of the sleeping bag following a nightmare and that he had placed him in cold water as, quote-unquote, you were in shock. Nielsen then led Stoddard to a nearby railroad station where he informed the young man he hoped they might meet again before he bade him farewell. Three months after Nielsen's June 1982 promotion to the position of executive officer in his employment, he encountered a 27-year-old named Graham Allen attempting to hail a taxi in Shaftesbury Avenue. Allen accepted Nielsen's offer to accompany him to Cranley Gardens for a meal. As had been the case with several previous victims, Nielsen stated he could not recall the precise moment he had strangled Allen, but recalled approaching him as he sat eating an omelet with the full intention of murdering him. Allen's body was retained in the bathtub for a total of three days before Nielsen began the task of dissecting his body upon the kitchen floor. Nielsen informed his employers he was ill and unable to attend work on October 9th of 1982. Likely in order to complete the dissection of Allen's body, on January 26 of 1983, Nielsen killed his final victim, 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair. Sinclair was last seen by acquaintances in the company of Nielsen, walking in the direction of a tube station. At Nielsen's flat, Sinclair fell asleep in a drug and alcohol-induced stupor in an armchair as Nielsen sat listening to the rock opera Tommy. Nielsen approached Sinclair, knelt before him, and said to himself, "Oh, Stephen, here I go again." before strangling Sinclair with a ligature constructed with a necktie and a rope. Following his usual ritual for bathing the body, Nielsen laid Sinclair's body upon his bed, applied talcum powder to his body, then arranged three mirrors around the bed before himself lying naked alongside the dead youth. Several hours later, he turned Stefan's head towards him before kissing the youth's body on the forehead and saying, good night, Stephen, end quote. Nilsen then fell asleep alongside the body, as had been the case with both Hallett and Allen, Sinclair's body was subsequently dissected with various dismembered parts wrapped in plastic bags and stored in either a wardrobe, a tea chest, or within a drawer located beneath the bathtub. Bags used to seal Sinclair's remains were sealed with the same creep bandages Nielsen had found upon Sinclair's wrist. Nielsen also attempted to dispose of the flesh, internal organs, and smaller bones of all three victims killed at Cranley Gardens by flushing their dissected remains down the toilet. In the practice which he had conducted upon several victims killed in Merrow's Avenue, he also boiled the heads, hands, and feet to remove the flesh off of these sections of the victims' bodies. On February 4th, 1983, Nielsen had wrote a letter to complain about the drains at Cranley Gardens being blocked and that the situation for both himself and the other tenants of the property was intolerable. The following day, he refused to allow an acquaintance to enter his property The reason being, he had begun to dismember Sinclair's body on the floor of his kitchen. On February 8th, 1983, Donna Rod employee Michael Catran had responded to the plumbing complaints made by both Nielsen and other tenants at Cranley Gardens. The drain was packed with a flesh-like substance. And numerous bones of unknown origin. Catrin had reported his suspicions to his supervisor Gary Wheeler. He and Wheeler agreed to postpone further investigation into the blockage until the following morning at 7:30 a m the following day Katrin and Wheeler returned to Cranley Gardens by which time the drain had been cleared. This aroused the suspicions of both men. Catrin discovered some straps of flesh and four bones in a pipe leading from the drain which linked to the top flat of the house. To both Catrin and Wheeler, the bones looked as if they originated from a human hand. Both men immediately called the police, who upon closer inspection, discovered further small bones and scraps of what looked like, to the naked eye, be either human or animal flesh in the same pipe. These remains were taken to the mortuary at Hornsley, where pathologist David Bowen advised police that the remains were human and that one particular piece of flesh, he concluded, had been a human neck that bore a ligature mark. Upon learning from fellow tenants that the top floor flat from where the human remains had been blushed belonged to Nielsen, Detective Chief Inspector Peter Jay and two colleagues opted to wait outside the house until Nielsen returned home from work. When Nielsen returned home, DCI Jay introduced himself and his colleagues, explaining they had come to inquire about the blockage and the drains from his flat. Nielsen asked why the police were interested in his drains, and also whether or not the two officers present with Jay were health inspectors. In response, Jay informed Nielsen that the other two were also police officers and requested access to his flat to discuss the matter further. Three officers followed Nielsen into his flat, where they immediately noted the odor of rotting flesh. Nielsen questioned further as to why the police were even interested in his drains to which he was informed the blockage had been caused by human remains. Nielsen feigned shock and bewilderment saying, good grief, how awful. In response, Jay responded, don't mess about. Where's the rest of the body? Nielsen responded calmly, admitting that the remainder of the body could be found in two plastic bags in a nearby wardrobe from which DCI Jay and his colleagues noted the overpowering smell of decomposition. The officers did not open the cupboard but asked Nielsen whether there were any more body parts to be found, to which Nielsen replied, it's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest at the police station." He was then arrested and cautioned on suspicion of murder before before being taken to Hornsey police station. While on route to the police station, Nielsen was asked whether the remains of his flat belonged to one person or two. Staring out of the window of the police car, he replied, 15 or 16 since 1978. That evening, Detective Superintendent Chambers accompanied DCI J.M. Bowen to Cranley Gardens where the plastic bags were removed from the wardrobe and taken to Hornsley Mortuary. One bag was found to contain two dissected torsos, one of which had been vertically dissected, and a shopping bag containing various internal organs. The second bag contained a human skull almost completely devoid of flesh, a severed head, a torso with arms attached, but the hands were missing. Both heads were found to have been subjected to moist heat. In an interview on February 10th, 1983, Nielsen confessed that there were further human remains stowed in a tea chest in the living room with other remains inside an upturned drawer in his bathroom. The dismembered body parts were the bodies of three men, all of whom he had killed by strangulation, usually with a necktie. One victim he could not name, Another he knew only as John the Guardsman. The third he identified as Stephen Sinclair. He also stated that beginning in December 1978, he had killed 12 or 13 quote-unquote men at his former address, 195 Melrose Avenue. Nielsen had also admitted to having unsuccessfully attempted to kill approximately seven other people who had either escaped or on one occasion had been on the brink of death but had been revived and allowed to leave his residence. Further search for additional remains at Cranley Gardens on February 10th revealed the lower section of a torso and two legs stored in a bag in the bathroom and a skull, a section of a torso and various bones in the tea chest. The same day, Nelson accompanied police to Melrose Avenue where he indicated the three locations in the rear garden where he had burned the remains of the victims. Under English law, the police have 48 hours in which to charge Nelson or release him. Assembling the remains of the victims killed at Cranley Gardens on the floor of Hornsey Mortuary, Professor Bowen was able to confirm the fingerprints on one body matched those on police files of Sinclair. At 5.40 p.m. on February 11th, Nielsen was charged with Sinclair's murder and a statement revealing this was revealed to the press. Formal questioning of Nielsen began the same evening, with Nelson agreeing to be represented by a solicitor. Police interviewed Nielsen on 16 separate occasions over the following days, in interviews which totaled over 30 hours. Nielsen was adamant that he was uncertain as to why he had killed, simply saying, I'm hoping you will tell me that, when asked his motive for the murders. He was adamant that the decision to kill was not made until moments before the act of murder. All of the victim's personal possessions were destroyed following the ritual bathing their bodies in an effort to obliterate their identity prior to their murder and they're now becoming what Nielsen described as a prop in his fantasies. On several instances, he talked to the victim's body as it remained seated in a chair or prone on his bed, and he recalled being emotional as he marveled the beauty of their bodies. In reference to one victim, Kenneth Ockenden, Nielsen noted that Ockenden's body and skin were very beautiful, adding the sight almost brought me to tears, quote unquote. Bodies of the victims killed at his previous address, 195 Merrow's Avenue, they were kept as long as decomposition would allow. Upon noting further signs of decomposition, Nielsen would stow them beneath his floorboards. If a body did not display the signs of composition, he occasionally on turn, he stowed it beneath the floorboards and retrieved it before again pleasuring himself as he stood over and lay alongside the body. Makeup was again applied to quote-unquote enhance its appearance and to obscure blemishes. question as to why the heads found at Cranley Gardens had been subjected to moist heat, Nielsen stated that he had frequently boiled the heads of his victims in a large cooking pot on his stove so that the internal contents evaporated, thus removing the need to dispose of the brain and flesh. Torsos and limbs of the three victims killed at this address were dissected within a week of their murder before being wrapped in plastic bags and stowed in the three locations he had indicated to police, the internal organs and smaller bones he flushed on the toilet. This practice, which had led to his arrest, had been the only method he would consider to dispose of the internal organs and soft tissue, as unlike Melrose Avenue, he had no exclusive use of the garden of the property. Nielsen confirmed that on four occasions, he had removed the accumulated bodies from beneath his floorboards and dissected the remains, and on three of these occasions, he had then disposed of the accumulated remains upon an assembled bonfire. On more than one occasion, he had removed the internal organs of the victims' bodies and placed them in bags which he typically dumped behind a fence to be eaten by wildlife. All of the bodies of the victims killed at Merrow's Avenue were dismembered after several weeks or months of interment beneath the floorboards. Nielsen recalled that the putrefaction of these victims' bodies made this task exceedingly vile. He recalled having to fortify his nerves with whiskey and having to grab handfuls of salt with which to brush aside maggots from the remains. Often he vomited as he dissected the bodies before wrapping the dismembered limbs in plastic bags and carrying the remains to the bonfires. Nonetheless, immediately prior to his dissecting the victims' bodies, Nielsen pleasured himself as he knelt or sat alongside the corpse. This, he stated, was his symbolic gesture of saying goodbye to his victims. When questioned as to whether he had any remorse for his crimes, Nielsen replied, I wished I could stop, but I couldn't. I had no other thrill or happiness, quote unquote. He also emphasized he took No pleasure from the act of killing, but quote unquote, worshipped the art in the act of death. On February 11th, 1983, Nielsen was charged officially with the murder of Stephen Sinclair. He was transferred to HMP Brixton to be held on remand until his trial. May 26th, Nielsen was committed to stand trial at the Old Bailey on five counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder. A sixth charge of murder was later added as well. Throughout his committal hearing, he was represented by a solicitor named Ronald Moss, whom he had previously dismissed as his legal representative on April 21st before Moss was reappointed to this role after Nielsen had complained to magistrates he had been afforded no facilities with which he could mount his own defense. Moss was to remain Nielsen's legal representative until July 1983, when Nelson, again expressing his intention to defend himself, discharged him until August 5th, when Nelson once again reappointed Moss. Initially, Nielsen intended to plead guilty to each charge of murder at his upcoming trial. With Nelson's full consent, Moss had fully prepared his defense. Five weeks before his trial, Nielsen again dismissed Moss and opted instead to be represented by Ralph Hames, upon whose advice Nielsen agreed to plead not guilty by diminished responsibility. Good old insanity plea. Nielsen was brought to trial on October 1983, charged with six counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder. He was tried at the Old Bailey before Justice David Powell Croom Johnson and pleaded not guilty on all charges. The primary dispute between the prosecution and the defense was not whether Nielsen had killed the victims, but his state of mind before and during the killings. The prosecuting counsel, Alan Green QC, argued that Nielsen was sane, in full control of his actions, and killed with premeditation. The defense counsel, Ivan Lawrence QC, argued that Nielsen suffered from diminished responsibility, rendering him incapable of forming the intention to commit murder, and should therefore be convicted Only of manslaughter. Several of the victims that survived his attacks also testified against him in court. Following the closing arguments in both the prosecution and the defense, the jury retired to consider their verdict on November 3rd of 1983. The following day, the jury returned with a majority verdict of guilty upon six counts of murder in one of attempted murder, with a unanimous verdict of guilty in relation to the attempted murder of Paul Knobs, Croom Johnson sentenced Nielsen to life imprisonment with a recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years imprisonment. The minimum term of 25 years imprisonment to which Nielsen was sentenced in 1983 was replaced by a whole life tariff by Home Secretary Michael Howard in December of 1994. This ruling ensured Nielsen would never be released from prison, a punishment he accepted. In 2003, Nielsen was again transferred to HMP Full Sutton, where he remained incarcerated as a category A prisoner. In the prison workshop, Nielsen translated books into braille. He spent much of his free time reading and writing and was allowed to paint and compose music upon a keyboard. He also exchanged letters with numerous people who sought his correspondence. On May the 10th, 2018, Nielsen was taken from HMP Full Sutton to York Hospital after complaining of severe stomach pain. He was found to have a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, which was repaired, although he subsequently suffered a blood clot as a complication of the surgery. Nielsen died on May 12th, of 2018. A subsequent post-mortem examination revealed that the immediate cause of Nielsen's death was a pulmonary embolism and a retroperitoneal hemorrhage. First, we want to thank everyone for listening to this a lot of work went into this you know definitely a uh, someone who was strange very strange very strange but um let me know who else you want me to do a video on i really like doing these videos for some reason but um leave a like if you enjoy hit that subscribe button if you're new to the channel also don't forget to turn on my post notifications if you haven't already thank you so much i really appreciate you um i'm out Peace.